Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat, this week is Boggin Strove here. Hello there. Well, let's explain a little bit about what we're talking about today because our topic for discussion is Hancock. However, this is not, first of all, the Will Smith film from a few years previously, just in case you think that we've suddenly branched out into the big screen. And more likely, you're thinking, ah, Hancock, as in the blood donor, the radio ham, and so on. However, as you'll have spotted, because you're a keen-eyed, not only listener, but viewer, today's topic is Hancock at ATV. We best explain a little bit, Boggs, about how we've got to this point, first of all. So can you give us just like a little sort of capsule biography of Tony Hancock up until this point, and where we already know him from, and who he's been associated with on our screens? Yes. During World War Two, when he joined the RAF regiment, he had a failed audition for ENSA. He ended up in the Ralph Reader gang show. Now, after the war, he eventually worked as the resident comedian at the Windmill Theatre in London, and that gave him a launching pad to go on to shows such as Workers' Playtime and Variety Bandbox. And in the early 50s, between 1951 and 52, he was a cast member of Educating Archie, which he played via tutor or foil to Archie Andrews, of course, the ventriloquist dummy. By 1954, he'd been given his own BBC radio show written by Galton and Simpson, which eventually developed into a BBC television series with the eponymous character Anthony Aloysius Sinjin Hancock in 23 Railway Cuttings East Sheen that most people might know of from that period. But it's also interesting to note in between his BBC series that he also did a series for ITV called The Tony Hancock Show. Now, of course, it's that BBC series which Tony Hancock is most associated with today and best remembered for. The story of that series and how that series evolved is, of course, very well told. So we don't really need to go into all the specifics here, but just very, very briefly... Hancock was not a fan of what he considered to be the comedy of, say, voices and accents and broad brushstrokes. He, for example, didn't like the fact that Kenneth Williams could get such big laughs on the radio and television with his variety of voices. And the justification he used for this was that he felt that this was getting away from proper character comedy. He felt that this was the comedy of a funny persona, an extension of basically the clown's makeup and so on. So over the years, gradually he sought to distance himself from, first of all, those supporting players like Kenneth Williams and Hattie Jakes. Eventually he thought that he was becoming too closely associated with Sid James and they were being viewed as a double act and so that final series where they dropped the half hour and it simply became Hancock that series was just Tony Hancock with Gotten Simpson writing and some people according to bits and pieces that we've read at the time some people felt this might be a step too far for Hancock. In actual fact that last series without Sid James is probably now considered his best work. You've got the episode the blood donor, the one that, of course, everyone discusses. It's the first one that anybody talks about whenever they 
bring up the subject of Hancock and we'll talk about that episode in a moment because there's something very specific about that episode which then leads into his later work and you've also got for example episodes in there such as the radio ham he wanted to do comedy drama really he wanted to be taken seriously as a straight actor but he wanted to bring that into the realms of sitcom which you can consider say by the late 50s early 60s is is quite a rare thing you know you think more nowadays you can get most sitcoms are basically almost comedy dramas but he was trying to pioneer this right at the outset of when television became at its most popular peak in the late 50s and early 60s. So Hancock, in seeking to sort of broaden his comedic horizons, moved onto the big screen, made a number of films during the 1960s, and also, for his next television series, moved to ATV without Ray Galton and Alan Simpson, and instead worked with a number of writers, including Terry Nation, the creator of The Daleks, for this series of 13 shows, entitled, again, Hancock, and these ran from the 4th of January 1963. Now, the first thing to mention about Hancock is that it debuted, like I say, on the 4th of January 63, and it wasn't the only comedy show that was beginning its run that night. It was basically a case that the series of Hancock on ATV clashed against a second series of Steptoe and Son, written by Galton and Simpson, where the BBC had the writers of the original Hancock Half Hours on board for Steptoe and Son. I mean, the next nearest thing for ITV to do was to get the star and actually place him in his own show on their channel, but also with different writers. But almost trying to copy the style that Galton and Simpson had been doing with Hancock shows at the BBC. Now, Steptoe and Hancock did not actually directly clash because Steptoe and Son ran at 5 to 8 on the Thursday evening, whereas Hancock went at half past 8. So, rather nicely for once, viewers didn't actually have to choose one or the other. However, I don't know that it necessarily helped Hancock not just having new writers and no longer having the support of Galton Simpson, but also having Galton Simpson's latest successful series going out immediately before his own show as well. It's not a great comparison to have. Well, I mean, not it ideal conditions. Sort, of, sort of really adds the pressure it does. You know, if you've got one of the leading shows on the BBC being followed on by what Tony Hancock did, a lot of people are going to say, we like Tony Hancock, but what they're doing with Steptone Son is even better. Well, what we're looking at today are six of the 13 episodes from the ATV series, Hancock. And we're going to begin with episode one, the episode that went out on the 4th of January 1963, which is entitled The Assistant and is written by Terry Nation. And alongside Tony Hancock, I guess this is a nice way of perhaps making the audience feel at home. Not only do you have Hancock, but you also have the chap he was playing opposite in The Blood Donor, Patrick Cargo. 
this episode it sort of sets a trend for the rest of the series in as much as Hancock his character is simultaneously familiar he hasn't fundamentally altered his appearance or anything like that or his delivery style and yet at the same time there's no mention of for example railway cuttings East Cheam. those elements have been shed and we are actually not really clued in as to where Hancock finds himself just now. And I suspect this is something we're going to keep on coming back to. Hancock begins the episode, as he does a number of episodes in the series, on the street corner, just observing. The title sequence itself is just himself observing. And in a way, it's quite a nice device. It's quite a nice mechanism. A lot of the episodes both begin and end with Hancock on the street corner, simply observing or engaging in conversations with the passers-by and so on. And it's from that situation that he finds himself in this sort of, I suppose you would say, Harrods-type store. And he goes into complaint about the standard of modern-day service and so on. And Patrick Gargle is the store manager and develops from there. And the basic premise of the episode is that Cargo challenges Hancock to work in the store for a week and not be rude to any customers. And if he can do so, then he'll tear up his well overdue account. Yeah, I mean, no, say with Patrick Cargill, he does play the store manager just like in the Norman Wisdom films. Obviously, you get Jerry Desmond as one of the foils for Wisdom himself. It's just he sort of plays him like. Jerry Desmond in Trouble in Store. It's almost the superiority over Hancock to say that I'm the manager, you're the customer, I know best. Now, there are some nice bits and pieces in this. For example, there is a long sequence where he's in the packing department and he's engaged in conversation with this chap who seems to have been down there rather too long for his own good. And they're having quite a, a sort of frantic conversation and Hancock is sort of learning the ropes. Eventually he's promoted to the role of Uncle Bunny where he has to appear as the store's oversized rabbit. Incidentally, the girl that he serves in the store is credited as Adrian Poster, but of course that would be Adrian Poster, who later on, but sort of a decade or so later on, you see in many things such as Mikey Arwood and some of the Carry On films and so on. Like I said, there are bits and pieces, there are little flashes of vintage Hancock in here, but one thing that does let it down, and again, this is sort of sowing the seeds for what's going to follow, is that first of all, we don't really learn a great deal about Hancock himself, as in the character of Hancock. We know that he is somebody who's got a big mouth, who talks his way unwittingly into this situation, but we don't really know a great deal about his background, so we're sort of left to assume, is this the same Hancock that we saw a couple of years previously? Is this an entirely new character that we're being given? If so, or either way, rather, we're not really being told anything, so we're just sort of left to make up our mind. And ultimately, the episode is without any resolution, because the premise was if you could walk in the store without being rude to a customer for a week, the manager would tear up his bill, and we don't actually have any conclusion to that storyline. It's a sitcom, but it does feel like they are sort of a sort of playlet, you know, sort of individual plays each time, with Tony Hancock 
as the star. Like you said, the packing department scene, I mean, you can see that with Hancock himself, a few years earlier, he would have had Sid James with him. Definitely, that the interaction is as good as what would have happened with Sid James. But the other parts of the show do seem very flabby. Well, one interesting little aspect about this first episode is that quite often when you hear people talk about Tony Hancock's post-BBC television work, it's quite often dismissed with a single paragraph. It's basically received wisdom. Tony Hancock got rid of Galton Simpson, went to ITV. It wasn't as good, period. Now, interestingly enough, that was not the singular view at the time. Here is a review from the Times the day after Hancock was broadcast, and it's without byline. The subheading is Honours Even in Comedy Shows, and the author talks about how enjoyable Steptoe and Son had been that evening, and talks about, for example, Wilfred Bramble, how he had sort of taken ownership of the role of Albert immediately, but now Harry H. Corbett was really getting to grips with Harold and were really starting to see his character come to the fore. And then comparing Hancock and ITV with Hancock's Half Hour, this time the whole cast is straight and all the parts are played by performers from legitimate drama rather than variety. It is all very funny because Mr. Hancock is funny and the material suits him to perfection. If Messrs. Galton and Simpson do not need him, he does not need them and the main result of their separation would seem to be the totally pleasurable one of giving us twice the amount of enjoyment in a single evening. Now, that's not something that you're going to see written down today about this Hancock series, but it is very, very interesting that that was someone's view at the time. As far as first episodes go, the lack of a satisfactory ending aside, it's not all bad. I mean, you've got plenty of scope there for Hancock to sort of show off his full bravado and what have you. I mean, when he's like, for example, when he's demonstrating the game with a customer, there's bits and pieces like that. There's plenty there for him to get his teeth into. I think that it was always going to suffer by comparison with his BBC work because his BBC work is so good. But as far as the first episode of a series is concerned, it's not half bad. When we talk about, say, performers, when they switch sides, which many performers have, one example that I will give is obviously Michael Crawford, where he starred in Some Mothers Do Adam. You know, it was a big successor of BBC. He went to Thames and did a series of them. They had the name of Michael Crawford, but... You know, the character which was created for him, the public didn't go for. It is a simple case of familiarity. Whereas Tony Hancock has got some familiarity in his ATV shows, you know, but like you said, you know, we don't know how he's developed in those years. You know, people want to know. They're literally a friend who comes into their lounge or parlour each week, you know, via the television. The character does become a friend and they want to know what has happened to them. Well, the view of the offer in The Times was not shared by Morris Richardson in The Guardian. He said, It was noticeable that Hancock was at his best in the 
duologue miming and grimacing in close-up of the history-obsessed Welsh packer, and at his worst in the crowded scenes which he never began to dominate. Perhaps he will recover, and it will be wonderful if he does, but the first of this new series will have to go down in clowning history as a remarkable act of sabotage. Now, two things sort of strike me about that. One is that that is... If that is the considered opinion of the author, then so be it. But there's a part of me that thinks that's the narrative. That is the narrative that's been established by this point. And it would be quite a brave reviewer who was to say... Like, for example, it's such a shame that the, the, the Times Review doesn't actually have a name attached to it because... It's quite refreshing to see somebody actually buck the trend and say person has switched sides and they've got a new setup and they're trying something different and they've let go of their old writers and their old cast. Let's see how this goes. And actually saying, you know what, it wasn't half bad. It wasn't half bad at all. Whereas this review here seems to be just following the logical curve. Well, let's have a look at episode three out of the 13. Now this one is entitled Shooting Star and is written by Godfrey Harrison who also wrote for Hancock on the radio prior to Hancock's Half Hour. Now it's funny, Boggs, that you mentioned before about episode one feeling like a series of individual plays and I really got that impression with the first half of this episode. The basic premise is that Denim Elliott is a film director, he spots Hancock in the street and thinks, ah, I've got somebody, I've got a new face for my latest production. And so the first half is effectively sort of Hancock learning the ropes in the acting trade and trying to perform a piece opposite a seasoned actress. And it really did, the way that that sort of built up and built up and built up, that did actually feel like a variety routine. It actually felt like something you could imagine seeing on the stage at the Palladium, for example. Sometimes with the writing, it doesn't know where it wants to actually be. It falls between two stools. For Hancock's style, right, it's half drama, it's half variety. You went from Hancock's half hour with more variety base, right, more variety based stars, and you come to this the ATV series, like with sort of straight actors, it doesn't know what to be. The episode is what it is. It's. I felt this was a weaker episode than The Assistant. There are some nice bits and pieces in it again, and it's a good supporting cast, and it's a nice little premise, but ultimately I, I didn't really feel it was particularly satisfactory. One thing I would say about this particular episode, is that in looking up some bits and pieces ahead of our discussion today, I came across a write-up on a classic comedy website, and it mentioned that Hancock's timing is as good as ever. The ATV series followed Hancock in a different situation each week, and in much the same vein as Hancock's half-hour, he reprises his character of the pompous fool. Now, I would take issue with this idea that his timing was as good as ever, because... This is something which I think is sharply different between different episodes. So, for example, in this episode here, Shooting Star, there are definitely bits and pieces. For example, when he comes in and he meets the actress for the first time and he's trying to work out because he doesn't know she's an actress, so he's trying to work out, oh, is this somebody that Denim Elliott's character is also plucked from obscurity or, or, and so on. There are bits and pieces in that dialogue where 
just some lines are just sort of left hanging in the air for a long, long time. And for whatever reason, Hancock's timing just seems to be, everything just seems to be just too slow in this episode. Whereas episode five, The Man in the Corner, which is also written by Godfrey Harrison, personally, I felt that was actually Hancock's. Out of all the episodes that we saw, I thought that was Hancock's strongest performance with regard to his timing. That actually felt like old BBC Hancock again. Yeah, yeah. If you give him the sort of lines that he requires, he can do it so well. Earlier at the BBC, in one instance, he did have a um, a car crash and have concussion. Uh, he did read the lines off a teleprompter. It's really interesting that you bring that topic up, Boggs, because I alluded to that earlier on. I mentioned about the blood donor being the most famous Hancock episode of all. And as you said... Immediately prior to that episode, Hancock had been involved in a car accident which had given him concussion and he wasn't able to learn his lines for that episode so he had to read them off teleprompters and it's something that you can see, for example, when he goes in he's talking to June Whitfield at the desk and you can see him looking off to his right to get the wording. Now this again, I think this falls into the category of received wisdom because I've seen it stated previously that Hancock from that point onwards and considering the adulation that he got for the blood donor and the fact that it's quite often cited as his finest work, then the received wisdom is that from that point onwards Hancock didn't bother learning any more lines and just read everything off idiot boards. Now looking at these episodes here, we know that that is categorically not the case. For example, this episode here, The Man on the Corner, he is not reading his words from a teleprompter. You can see that he's making eye contact with the chap opposite him on the desk. He's making eye contact with all of the different people that he's playing opposite throughout the episode. And there are lots of scenes, for example, when he's in the house of the suspected spy that he's been trailing. He's got all sorts of bits of business to attend to and so on. And he's got the pistol in his hand all that kind of stuff and he gets the telephone receiver mixed up with a pistol he's definitely not reading his words in that episode in the assistant he is not reading his words again you can see from the close-ups when he's doing the the two-handers with kenneth griffith and with patrick cargo he's interacting with them now the episode shooting star that is a much much more difficult one to pin down and this is something that I've often wondered about because an element of this episode was used in the BBC documentary from, I think, around about sort of 10 years ago. I think it was around about 2005, thereabouts, so just, just shy of a decade. An excerpt of this episode was used to illustrate Hancock's decline. And the section that they chose for that documentary, and you can see it on YouTube, is when he is rehearsing his lines with the actress, when he's going through his first run of Denim Elliot as a director and so on. And there was a point where he dries and says, I had it perfectly last night. What is it? And appears to look at an idiot board and then delivers his line in a very sort of stilted sort of fashion. And like I say, there are bits and pieces in that episode where like, his timing is way off and so on. But without actually seeing the written script, and we know that the writing for this series was not ideal because you had a number of different writers writing different episodes and so on. And also, we can't get away from it. The fact that uh, Hancock, by this point, you know, his, his alcoholism 
was sort of rapidly getting out of control. So you don't necessarily know what Tony Hancock you're going to be dealing with as a director on the night. Now, bearing all that in mind, unless you actually saw the script that they finally went with on the evening of the recording, then we have no way of knowing whether that line was actually scripted or not. Because bear in mind, he is playing the role of somebody who is playing the role of an actor who is not an actor, trying to remember his lines and trying to deliver a script. So to include that section as an instance of Hancock's decline, I think, is not ideal because it, it, it leaves the program open to a charge of misrepresentation. Now, I don't know, like I say, I don't know either way whether that is a fair use of that clip or not. But if I was going to try and illustrate Hancock's decline, I wouldn't have chosen that specific set of circumstances because it could very well be that that that's atypical. So like I say, I can't pin down on Shooting Star whether Hancock is reading his words off the teleprompter or not because, like I say, there are scenes given the plot of the episode where he is supposed to be doing just that. And that could be a useful device, of course. The episode The Craftsman, where he plays opposite Brian Wilde, we can categorically say that he is because you can see it in the close-ups. You can see his eyes wandering. You can see the eyes going from left to right. You can see where he's looking off into the distance. That episode, I mean, you, you tell me your own thoughts about it, but that episode, that episode incidentally was written by Richard Harris and Dennis Spooner. And apart from the occasional little bit of brilliance, and I'll mention it in just a second, I felt that this was one of the weakest episodes out of the six that we saw. With Brian World and Tony Hancock, I mean, that is a very, very, very good scene. The interaction between the pair of them is as good as, you know, it's been throughout the whole series it has. And obviously, if Hancock can have someone to bounce off, it means that he can deliver a performance. But if there isn't anyone, he's... he's he does seem to sort of he does seem to sort of flounder. Well, you mentioned before about in the instances where he is reliant on the teleprompter, then he is in less of a position to, for example, embellish. He's in less of a position to flourish or to ad lib if he's reliant on constantly having his eye or having one eye on the the text. And I think that that comes across in this episode because there's also so much physical comedy as well. And there's only so much that he can be asked to do if he's got to have one eye on the large print words off screen and simultaneously he's been asked to do slapstick with the props, with his basic premise of the episode is that he's seen a DIY expert on the television and along comes a bystander in the shape of Brian Wilde, the one from Last of Summer Wine from Pottage. And because Hancock is, you know, basically embellishing and making it that he's some sort of DIY expert, Brian Wilde talks him into helping him with his own DIY at home. And so you've then got the second half, which, like you said before, Boggs, it's a series of little sort of individual scenes, a series of little, almost almost unconnected little playlets. And because there's so much going on there with the the planks of wood and just little bits of business with like the, the tools and the measuring tape and so on, yeah, it's something where if that was something that was rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed meticulously, then you could see that being a very successful little piece. It reminded me in some ways of the Bruce Forsyth and 
Norman Wisdom routine hanging the wallpaper. By the time it gets to the end of the episode, where it should be building to a climax, it simply meanders. It just gets to the end of its allotted time and Hancock's character comes out of it badly because he, like I say, he was talking himself up in the first instance to get to this point and now having blown it, he simply just throws up his hands and just walks out on the situation. And where you'd think that that's going to be something where the situation has been sort of ratcheted up and up and up until eventually, right, I've had enough of this, can't stand this anymore, I'm getting the hell out of here, then it's just, yeah, it's just really flat. And the episode at least has a nice sort of full circle. He goes back to the spot where he was in the first instance and so on. You see then, okay, history's going to repeat itself. And yet, yeah, it just just loses its fizz and it just, it doesn't, doesn't go anywhere and it's a real shame because as an episode I suspect if you could see that episode laid out on a storyboard as to how it was supposed to be it probably had a lot of potential I mean really with that episode it should have been the conclusion like you say it should be ramped up and ramped up I mean Brian Wilde's wife should have really come back and then if you get the three of them you know you've got you've got a, a situation with them you know, Tony Hancock's obviously doing the DIY. Brian Wilder's obviously said, can you do this for me? And then at least you have someone else come in and for Hancock to play off because he he does need that. And it, it does form a natural conclusion. You know, if you would have got the right actress in to play his wife and then he could have walked and said, right, I've had enough of this. And then it, it leaves Brian Wilde in the lurch. When he stood in front of the TV shop window and he's waxing lyrical about his prowess with DIY, lady he's speaking to, Barbara Mitchell, I actually thought she was going to turn out to be Brian Wilde's wife. I thought, ah, <laughs> a little seed was planted there right at the outside. I thought that's where it was going to go, but, but no. One thing I'd say about this episode is that there are, for all of these shows, there are little flashes of the old Hancock brilliance. And there is one line in this which just sort of hit me. When he's talking to Brian Wilde and Brian Wilde says, oh, you know, I've always been hassled by the wife to do the DIY, but I haven't got the time. And Hancock looks at him and says, time? Did Christopher Wren think about time when he built St. Pancras? Now, that line is as good as Magna Carta. That is a brilliant line. That is classic Hancock. As good as anything that he would have said at the BBC. And it's just, when you see something like that, you think, I ah, still got it. And then you sort of think, oh, why isn't you know, why is the rest of the episode not like this? Because he hasn't lost it. He's still got that touch. And when he utilizes it, he's still got the comic timing and he's still got the delivery and so on. And it's nice to see it occasionally come out and it's just a pity that there aren't more instances like that. Different styles of writers want to be able to mould their lines in different ways. Whereas, we keep on coming back to Galton and Simpson, right? They knew. I mean, to use a football analogy, you have a wing player who plays the ball in and a goal scorer scores a goal. You've got to have someone who knows how to set up a line for a performer and then, you know, they can deliver the line. But if you don't have that, 
the performer can't do that. They they will just sort of skip around a line when it is absolutely obvious. One last point I want to make about this episode before we move on. I'd mentioned there before about Hancock's alcoholism. If you've not seen these episodes, it's important to point out that this is before the real severity of Hancock's addiction took hold. So if you've seen, for example, say you've seen the interview of Hancock on Late Night Lineup from 65, or if you've seen him at the Royal Festival Hall in 66, by that point, it's visible in his face. You can see, as Bob Monkhouse said, about how he lost so much of his expression when he started drinking during the day. Hancock is not at that point here. He still appears, although he's not quite as fresh-faced, so to speak, as he is at the BBC, he's still recognisably Hancock. He's still recognisably the Hancock of old, and he's still able to express all the different characteristics and all the nice little bits of business and so on. There aren't actually a great deal. In the episodes that we saw here, there aren't a great deal of instances where Hancock is asked to do a particularly expressive close-up. It does happen on occasion. There are times when, for example, that first episode when he's reacting to the chap in the warehouse who's going on in this long sort of spiel about his exploits of the past. There are times then when Hancock is you know, being given the fixed camera to respond to, but it doesn't tend to happen a great deal. And if memory serves... I seem to sort of recall that there are more instances of that at the BBC. There are more times when Hancock is given the sort of the space to react to other people's lines. And possibly one of the reasons for that might well be that Hancock has now surrounded himself at his own request with straight actors. And so Hancock's character is being asked to carry the comedic aspects of the show. Not exclusively, not 100%, because you know, he's not hogging it. There, there are times where, for example, you've got like funny lines being delivered by, for example, Brian Wilde, and we mentioned before about Patrick Cargill, and in the episode The Man in the Corner, John Bluefall is in there, for example. Yeah, there are all people who are getting laughs, but because Hancock no longer has, for example, someone like Sid James who's getting laughs, Hancock is not being asked to respond to those laughs as much. So there's less scope there for, for example, if Sid James delivers a line that gets a huge laugh, then you've got plenty of time to have Hancock's reaction on screen. His reaction can take up several seconds. Whereas there isn't a great deal for Hancock to react to in these episodes because he's simply been fed straight lines by his fellow performers. And also it's a case where in the BBC he would have, say, no, he said the space to do something. In one episode at the BBC, he does a perfect uh, Mickey take of Archie Andrews. He does a whole sort of act like he is Archie Andrews a dummy. He gets that slave camera to do that. If you give him a slave camera, you've got to give him the lines to do that. The last couple of episodes we saw, firstly, episode nine, The Night Out. This again was written by Terry Nation and features Derek Nimmo 
amongst the supporting cast, and also Donald Hewlett as well, that we saw later on in, in Alf Hotman, for example. And again, this episode just sort of runs its course. It runs out of steam. It, it comes up with an interesting opening, because we have this situation with Hancock in a hotel. He doesn't know where he is or who anybody around him is. It breaks the previously established format of starting with Hancock the Observer on the street. At first you're intrigued to find out where all this is going to go and how it's going to play out and so on and it's to an extent it does and it's partially satisfactory but again it just sort of feels like it's going to take 24 minutes it takes 24 minutes and there you are. It's another sort of what if episode you think okay well with certain tweaks and so on this could be much more successful, particularly the the conclusion. If you happen to be distracted just temporarily for whatever reason, you wouldn't even realise that the conclusion had happened, that the episode has come to an end, because where it should build up and build up and build up, and then, oh, damn it, history's going to repeat itself. He got plastered at this night out. It led to this huge, big old party that he ended up footing the bill for. He's got to try and extract himself from the situation. And lo and behold, he's got himself in exactly the same situation the following night. And that should be the big payoff. But again, it just sort of happens. Like you say, it's an interesting situation. But how you've got to put obstacles along the way and to be able to do twists and turns. Otherwise, if an episode floats along, it's just going to be not memorable at all. If you show an episode like that to someone who hasn't seen the series before, they just think, well, I don't watch the next one. Because, you know, it doesn't give me anything to base my ideas on. Well, the last episode that we saw as part of our half dozen is The Writer, episode 12. Again, written by Terry Nation. And again, got some familiar faces in it, Francis Matthews and John Junkin principally and the basic setup is that John Junkin is a stand-up comic and Hancock unwittingly criticizes his act when it's going out on television and then realizes that he's done so in front of John Junkin's character himself and then again the sort of the the bullshitter in him starts to come to the fore and he starts to try to tell him how to do his job and so on and there you are by this point, aside from the bits and pieces that we've spoken about, aside from, for example, there are difficulties with having different writers throughout the series. And again, without first-hand experience, it's really impossible to put your finger on just what it would have been like to have worked on this show under the circumstances, um, have, for example a leading man who wasn't always in the best condition to perform and, most importantly of all, sometimes was reading his lines off the the prompter, which is not a good situation at all to be in with regard to quality performance or delivery. All that said, all those caveats in place, by the end of this episode, the one aspect of this entire series that was really coming across strongly to me was that I have no idea who the Hancock in this Hancock series is. For example, his persona in this episode is 
quite close to the craftsman, where he is puffing himself up and making out that he's somebody who he isn't. In the assistant, for example, he is really just a nuisance who talks himself into an awkward situation. But he didn't go breaching into the store and suddenly say to Patrick Cargill, I'm the best assistant that you've never employed. You know, you should give me a job here and so on. So those two aspects of his personality, okay, they're not exactly at odds, but it's also not really establishing any kind of pattern. Then in something like The Night Out, and also in Shooting Star as well, he's a different person. He's really vulnerable. In Shooting Star, he's just suddenly found himself in this situation, surrounded by all these actors. He doesn't really know what he's got himself into. In Night Out, he is just sort of wandering around thinking, how the hell did I get into this state of affairs? And suddenly the, the bravado that we've seen in previous episodes, where he can talk himself in or out of a situation, has gone. And so I'm just sort of left at the end of this thinking, who is Hancock, according to the title of this series? Because I really don't know. He's missing the character that he had in the BBC series. It's almost like each time he's an individual. It's almost like a new Tony Hancock has been placed in the episodes themselves. Like last week didn't happen. What's his personality going to be like this week? It's got a name on his name on the show, but there's nothing else to hang on the show. You know, there isn't familiarity. There isn't a base for him to live at. You know, you think most sitcoms have at least somewhere where I, uh, a person might live or work. But it almost, it doesn't have neither. He just is on a street corner. And it hasn't got those sort of conventional things to fall back on. I can't really fault the efforts of any one particular writer, but it does come across that it's not so much even that you don't have all the episodes being written by the same person, or specifically in Hancock's case, the same duo. It's more that there isn't a single person who's overseeing all of these. You know, It's quite common to have shows that have a creator and then you have other people come in to write individual episodes but the creator still oversees the whole thing and makes sure that somebody's character doesn't suddenly undergo a Jekyll and Hyde change halfway through the series for no apparent reason and in this it doesn't seem like there's any one sort of pair of eyes just looking over all of this and thinking you know Hancock here seems a little bit odds with how he was last week in all of that, the actual pair of eyes looking over it is Tony Hancock, because although it's an ATV production, right, Hancock has got his own sort of independent company helping out with the series. But like you say, it does need something like a an overall script editor, someone he can trust. Now, Tony Hancock is an actor, comedian. He's not a script writer. If you don't have a script editor, you have no one to say, well, I don't think this line will actually work. Like I say, we saw six of the 13 episodes. All 13 of these episodes do exist. 
They have never been made available commercially. And it would be nice. It would be nice to actually be able to see all 13 episodes, to see the overall trajectory of the series. And despite everything that, that we've been saying, I go back to what we said right at the outset. These shows are not as bad as Received Wisdom suggests. You know, they are not anywhere in the same class as Hancock's Half Hour at the BBC, but then what shows are. As a standalone show, it's perfectly good. It's going to suffer by comparison to what's gone before. And some episodes are better than others. Like I say, there are some episodes which work pretty well and everything sort of comes together quite nicely. And it would be nice to actually see the show get a DVD release or get some sort of release in 2014 just to let modern pairs of eyes see it and just let people make up their own mind about it. I don't see any immediate prospect of that, but perhaps. I mean, there's a later series on ITV, Hancock's, which does not exist at all, barring a few minutes, so we don't have the opportunity, for example, to to see that. That show, as I understand it, was formatted in such a way as to sort of take account of Hancock's slight difficulties with performing by that stage is 1967 so it was in a sort of cabaret format and you had Jude and Whitfield as support and the, the overall format was a lot more loose so it wasn't so reliant on Hancock himself but what were your final thoughts then Boggs on Hancock ATV? If you take it out of the context of uh, say Hancock's Half Hour it is a good standalone show really with the shows Tony Hancock um you know, the performances do come across well, but like you were saying, compared to Steptoe and Son and Hancock's Half Hour, any show against them would struggle. But as an individual piece, it is as good as any work that he did before that. It is an alien situation to find whereas you've got the actual length of show, say 24 minutes with a commercial break in between, on the BBC you did not have that, it does feel different. But the actual setups of of the shows do feel like they they are uniquely something of their own it is a good sort of situation for the shows to be in it it does hold up well well Boggs thank you very much indeed for joining me today it'll be very interesting to look at a series which doesn't really get talked about a great deal and doesn't really get a lot of visibility these days and I'm sure that at some point in the future we will actually discuss Hancock's Half Hour and that will be quite a lengthy discussion because to do that justice over the radio series and the TV series and so on is going to take quite a few shows. In the meantime, if there's a particular show that you'd like us to talk about, if you've got anything else for ourselves, you can tweet us at The Sitcom Club or you can find The Sitcom Club on Facebook. Sitcomclub.com is where you can find all the previous episodes of the podcast, 60 or so episodes in the archive now. And we will be back next week with a Nellis sitcom related discussion. Bog and Strovia, can you just mention the name of your very fine light entertainment blog? 
Yes, that's Bogenstrovia's bit, and the web address is bogenstrovia.blogspot.com. And there should be some new articles coming on there pretty soon. Of course, we're rapidly approaching the season of goodwill and joy to all men and all that kind of lark. And you've got a very nice article on that blog about Christmas Night with the Stars and its ITV equivalent, the All-Star Comedy Carnival, which featured many a mini sitcom in its day. Yes, yes. It focuses on the late 50s to the early 70s, basically taking the... BBC and ITV's uh, Best of Their Light Entertainment Output and putting it on the one evening, whereas we know individual programmes now, they would put it in so many different segments during a show. So you would have the two Ronnies or a uh, sketch from Dad's Army. And it also features thoughts about the later version, The Funny Side of Christmas, which went out um, I'm sure you'll correct me, Boxing Day 1982, which does feature some of the early uh, Christmas appearances of Only Fools and Horses, etc. And the, basically the best of the BBC's comedies in the early 80s. It- and I don't have to correct you because it didn't do go out Boxing Day 82. And the reason that sticks in my mind is because Boxing Day was not in the 26th that year because that was one of the Christmas Sunday years where the 26th fell on Sunday. Indeed, well, uh, yeah, I can I can tell you that's a very, very good article because I read that just recently. And yeah, do subscribe to the blog. And in the meantime, we will be with you again this time next week on the Sitcom Club. <laughs>